opportunity we have to spend in your word. Bless this time as we study, open our hearts and minds to your message and to what you would have us say and do. Help us, Lord, in this study. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be turning to Mark chapter 4 if you would like in your Bibles. I may need some help from you this morning. As you, If you were here the last time I preached, you know that I wander. If I wander left and I get too far and you see Pat having to scoot, kind of give me the, somebody will raise their hand and push over or Pat's going to come kind of nudge me over, which will be just fine. So I'll be just fine. If you see me, just kind of direct me. So we're going to spend time this morning with the parable of the sower. So um, before we get into the actual parable, I want to think just for a minute about Jesus as a teacher. So I spent some time teaching at a university, and one of the things we would do every year is spend time at conferences, and we would talk about what we called best practices, right? How do you teach the best you can teach? And the way you do that is you learn from those that do it really well. Well, before we get into the parable, I want us to think for just a minute about Jesus as a teacher, because I think sometimes we lose focus of how he taught. And what we do nowadays, nothing wrong with this, but this is the most common way that I would have taught growing up, or as I've gotten into preaching a little more, as I read a scripture, and then I talk about it, and then I read a scripture, and then I talk about it. But when we look at Jesus, that's not the way he taught. So let's take a few minutes to look at how Jesus taught if he wanted to get to people before we hop into this parable, okay? So Jesus was the master teacher, right? Think about the way he taught in his life. Do do you remember any times where Jesus used any illustrations? Yeah, we're going to talk about a parable, right? A story that has a meaning. Did Jesus ever use illustrations that they understood? Did Jesus ever use demonstrations? Yeah, remember when he took a child and set him on his lap or when he washed the disciples' feet? Did Jesus ever adjust his message based on his audience? Well, yeah. Look at how he talked to the scribes and the Pharisees versus those who weren't learned in Scripture, the rich versus the poor. Did Jesus get really in-depth and complicated and complex so that they needed to go home and figure out the meaning of a Greek word? No, actually, that's not the way Jesus taught, is it? Jesus kept it pretty simple and straightforward. Now, that's don't mistake simple for superficial. We'll talk about this a little later when we talk about his parable here. But Jesus kept it simple and straightforward. And so, as we think about Jesus as the master teacher, let's talk about this parable. Let's look at what he did as the master teacher. Here in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered around him so that he got into a boat and he set it into the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land and he was teaching them many things in parables. Right off the bat, let's look at what Jesus did. He used the tools around him. We may not think about it, but Jesus got into a boat. That's no different than me using a PowerPoint, right? Jesus used the tools available to him. Remember when he used a stick to write in the mud? Remember when he used mud itself? Jesus used the tools available to him to teach. Look at what Jesus does. He's going to teach many things in parables. What are parables? These are illustrations. These are stories that are familiar and easy to understand so that the people listening knew what he was saying. I've made the mistake before of making sure that I want to prepare some deep academic discussion. And that's not the way that we're going to bring most people to Christ. Nothing wrong with that. There's times where we need to study the Greek word and the Hebrew words. But when we look at what Jesus did, he really knew his audience. 
He taught it at the right level, and he made sure it was a simple message. Eight verses, and he's got a powerful sermon that we're about to read through. Jesus was the master teacher, and if I want to teach like Jesus, I need to kind of copy the way that he taught. All right, so let's get into the parable here. So what's going on? We have the parable of the sower, okay? So listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So the story here is one that would have been very familiar. Would this audience have been familiar with agriculture? Well, yes. In fact, this is an agriculture society, and everybody was directly related to their food. Even those that had markets and had trades, they still knew how food was grown. May not be the case in today's society, and we might use different examples, but Jesus used something that was very familiar. This is a man going out to sow seed. Now, he didn't have this big broadcast spreader that he's wheeling along. He didn't have a big machine. He was using his hand. And if you've ever done this in your backyard, you're out just kind of flinging the seed, right? And you try to just spread it out. Whereas you're doing that and you fling the seed, what happens? Some of it goes where you want it to go, right? But some of it goes beyond the edge and it lands on the pathway. Some of it goes off to the side into the rocks. Some of it goes off to the side where you haven't prepared and there's thorns and there's weeds. And that's the illustration that Jesus is giving here. And the focus here is on the soil. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning, the soil. So the seed he's going to tell us is the word of God, but the soil is how it's received. So we might think about that as our heart or our lives and how we receive that word. And he's talking about how it's received among the world, but I want us specifically to talk about how it's received by us this morning. And so that's what we're going to focus on, the four types of soil that Jesus puts out there. First one is the path, right? So if you've hiked in Alaska, you know you've got a pathway, it's beaten down, there's not as, many, not as much grass, not as many weeds, right? It's hard soil. The next one is the rocky soil. Now, it's not just a rock, but what that means is there's rocks with just very little dirt on top, right? There's not much dirt on top of that. And the next one is an area that's overgrown with thorns and weeds and bushes. And then the final one is the good soil. And that's where it has been prepared and cultivated, ready to take the seed. So let's march through each of these four and see what Jesus is going to teach us about the soil. The first one, and if you have your outline, hopefully you'll see anywhere there's an underline area, that's a blank for your outline. If you don't have an outline, there were some in the back. It will not be offensive if you get up and go get one. might help keep you awake during the sermon. Take a few notes. So the first one is the path, the hard soil, okay? The hard soil. So this is soil that's so hard that the seed lands on top and it remains exposed, sitting on top of that soil. Okay? There's no protection to it. There's nothing covering it. So in Tennessee, I, I was a farmer, sort of. My wife will laugh when I say that. We grew stuff. Um, and I would grow corn. Growing corn is a little different in different parts of the country. So in Tennessee, I would plant a piece of corn or a seed of corn every three to four inches. 
in a long row, and I would separate those rows between 24 and 28 inches. So the average acre in Tennessee will hold between 30 and 32,000 seeds of corn. Okay. Now, we don't have a lot of crows in Tennessee, or you might call them ravens here. They're, I guess that's just a bigger form of a crow. They're huge here, right? We don't have a lot of those, so we don't see a lot of scarecrows in Tennessee. Because if you put out 32,000 seeds on an acre and a bird comes in and eats 100 of them, so what, right? 99% of it remained. Here, you've got crows that I think could probably devour several hundred seeds a day. These ravens could come in. And we were in Palmer yesterday. We actually saw some scarecrows out in the fields. Emily and I lived on the Hopi Reservation, an Indian reservation in northern Arizona. And corn is a very important part of their life. But they're trying to grow corn in the desert. And so when they plant corn, they put out a seed of corn, and then they walk nine feet and put out the next seed. And then they walk nine more feet and put out the next seed. And then their row is nine feet over. So whereas we may have 32,000 seeds per acre, they may have just a couple of hundred. And there you see scarecrows, and you have dogs out in the field. They're out there protecting that seed because if a crow comes in and eats a couple hundred seeds, you've lost your whole crop. Well, that's the illustration that Jesus is using with this path, this hard soil and the seed is on top and it's unprotected. And he says in Mark chapter 4 and verse 15, 14 and 15, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. There is no protection. The, the, the word is exposed, and Satan comes in and takes it away. How does Satan come in and take the word away? I don't understand, is Satan automatically in our lives? Well, I've heard it said from Tony in this pulpit, and I've heard it said from others who were teaching, Satan doesn't have any power that we don't give him, right? So for Satan to come into my life and take the, take the seed away, the word of God away, what that means is I've let Satan into my life. I have things in my life where I've left the door open for Satan to be in my life. That means that Satan is there when he shouldn't be. I've allowed him to stay in my life, and that allows him to steal away that seed. And how do I do that? Well, that's a simple one. That's because I've left sin in my life, things in my life that I shouldn't have there. See, when we become a Christian, we're supposed to do away with this past life, right? We're supposed to put it to death and to turn and repent. But what happens is, if I'm this type of soul, I I still have some of those things from that past life, some of those sins that are in my life. Romans 6, 5 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Right? We're supposed to put to death our old self. Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, that we must put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us. We are supposed to put those things away from us. But when I leave that sin in my life, I've allowed Satan to come into my life. So these are the sins in my life that that we might call pet sins, right? Or secret sins. Those pet sins are the ones, I mean, are they really sin? We tolerate them, right? I mean, do we really get upset? Because when we think of sin, most of us went to Oh, yeah, um, homosexuality and sexual immorality. And what about those people addicted to drugs, those awful people in society that have those sins? That's not the sin that Jesus is talking about here that lets Satan into your life because most of us in this audience don't struggle with those. Those pet sins I'm talking about, 
are things like worldliness, where we think it's okay to buy a car worth $200,000. What's the number you want to put on it? Where we think it's okay to have a job that occupies our whole life. What about the pet sins of things like, oh, is, it, is, is gossip really a sin? I mean, is, is telling a little lie, are those really sins? I mean, we tolerate that, right? That's hard to get out of your life. Those pet sins that we say, well, that's just the way they are. You know, it's a pet peeve of mine because I hear that all the time. I've said that. So please understand, I've said that. I've heard that at every church I've been a part of. And you talk about people, right? We gossip about people because of the sins we leave in our lives. And somebody's like, oh, well, they're not a bad person. That's just the way they are. You know, oh, they just argue about everything. That's the way they are. Oh, they just talk about everybody. That's just the way they are. You know what that's code for? They're sinning and we don't care. That's just okay that they're going to sin. That's what Jesus is talking about. Satan comes into our life because we left him there, because we left those sins in our lives. Or maybe it's not those pet sins that we tolerate. Maybe it's those secret sins. Because in my life, I have things that I don't want you to know about. I don't want you to know what I struggle with. And there's things in my life that I struggle with, but as long as nobody knows about them, does it matter? Those are those types of sins that we leave in our life that allows Satan to come in. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. A repentance. That's the key. That's the key to this type of soil. Is a repentance that says, I'm not going to be that way. I'm not going to allow that sin. doesn't mean we don't sin. All of us will sin. But there's a difference between I'm struggling with a sin and I tolerate things in my life. I tolerate things in the lives of my brothers and sisters that we just say is okay. That we just say, well, that's the way they are. That we just say, well, that's society. That's not, that's not the way we're supposed to be. If I want to not be the, the, uh, the hard path, then I need to make sure I get rid of those sins out of my life. The next soil is the rocky ground. Now, this probably is not pure rock. Maybe it's a lot of rocks mixed in with the soil, or maybe it's a rock with a little bit of soil on top, right? And there's not much depth to that soil. So think about this. Um, I'm going to ask a question, and being in Alaska, you may not know the answer. So have you ever seen a drought? Now, the reason I ask that is I've been here six months, and I don't know if Alaska's ever seen a drought or not because you had snow that was one of the biggest snows of the winter, right? And then it rains, is it every day or every other day? It's just almost every day, right? It rains. But if you've ever been around a a drought, right, what happens to the nice green grass that we have? Does it stay green in a drought? No, it, it, it withers up, right? It gets brown, starts to die. What about the pretty little flowers and the little bushes, right? The flowers go away, the blooms go away. But what about these big trees that you see around here? Do they die every time we go two weeks without rain? Do they die every time we go through a little drought? Emily and I have spent some time traveling in Africa, and one of the places we like to go is Namibia, and it's a desert. And one of the things we do is we track what they call the desert elephants. So we get in a a vehicle, and we track them by driving along the riverbeds. Now, this is an area of the country there 
where they go eight to nine months a year with zero rain. They average less than one millimeter of rain over a nine-month time period. Okay, That's a drought. So as you're driving the riverbeds, dust, dirt, there's not a bit of mud anywhere. How do you even know where the riverbed is? Well, I can tell you how. You look for the 50-foot tall trees because the only place they grow in that country is next to the riverbed. How in the world does a place that goes nine months without rain each year have 50-foot tall trees? Well, you know the answer. It's the roots, right? The roots dig deep into the earth. They go 20, 30, 40 feet down. And those roots get the water and get the nutrients they need so that when the sun scorches, they have something to keep them alive. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 4, 16 and following, And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And then they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They wither. They wither under the sun. So how does a believer, how how does a Christian wither? How do they wither and die? It's the same thing as the grass. They have no roots, right? They have no depth. Particularly, they have no depth to their knowledge of what God wants. They have no depth to their study of God's Word. You want to not be the rocky soil? Then you spend time getting depth of your understanding of God's will. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk instead of meat. Now again, you, just, you might say, Well, Stephen, you just said Jesus teaches simple. He teaches simple, but he does not teach superficial. And there's a difference. So what type of Christian is this describing? The one with the rocky soil, the one who has no depth. Well... If I can be blunt, that's the type of Christian that shows up and comes into the worship service and kind of halfway pays attention to what's being said. That's the type of Christian that sometimes comes to Bible class when it's convenient. The type of Christian who never takes notes in Bible class or never takes notes in the sermon and never goes back and says, you know, Tony, is that, is that right? Is that what the Bible says? Or maybe I need to understand this deeper. It's the type of Christian that spends more time on their phone during worship than they do engaged in what's going on. It's the type of Christian who doesn't have a personal Bible study in their life, who doesn't spend time on their own in the Word of God. How much time do you spend studying daily? It's a hard question for me to answer, and it kind of steps on my own toes, so I thought I would ask it for everybody. How much time do you spend in the Word daily? Maybe this is the first question is, do you spend time in the Word daily? And maybe that's the first step is determining that I'm going to every day. Are you progressing in your knowledge? Are you progressing in your understanding? Are you getting deeper in your knowledge? You may say, I don't, I don't know much. You know, I know it's in the Bible, but I don't know where. That's okay. You may know nothing right now. But in a month from now, hopefully you'll know more. In a year from now, right, are you progressing in your understanding and your knowledge? 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 is a scripture we're all very familiar with. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
as Christians, we should be in the Word of God. You want to know how you get depth? It starts right here. That's how we get depth. I'm surprised as 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 I, in a previous role where people would come to us as an eldership and they would ask questions or say, hey, I'm struggling in this area of my life, and they would want to be a better, and you can fill in the blank, I want to be a better husband, I want to be a better wife, I want to be a better father, I want to be a better worker, I want to be a better child. And they would always ask, how do I do that? What's your magic piece of advice? And I think what they want us to do is pull out some magic pill that they're going to take and suddenly they're going to be a better husband or wife or or a stronger Christian. But the answer was always the same. The first two answers were always the same. And it doesn't matter where it's, I want to be a better fill in the blank. It doesn't matter. The answer is always spend more time in prayer and more time in Bible study. You want to be better at anything, spend more time in prayer, more time in Bible study. Those are the way that we get the depth that we need. We get the understanding that we need. It doesn't magically happen. If my, if my Bible study consists of coming to church, I'm never going to know the Bible. Okay, I'm sorry, but I'm never going to know the Bible by sitting in a sermon 30 minutes a week. I'm just not. That is not enough. In fact, there's a survey, or there was an estimate that was done by one of the... Um, Christian surveys, um, and it says that the average Christian spends less than 30 minutes a week in personal Bible study, okay, 30 minutes a week. So let's do this. Let's say you're a parent or a grandparent, and one of your children comes to you, or maybe if you don't have kids yet, one of your best friends comes to you, and they ask a question, and they say, or they say, I want to be a professional football player, right? I want to be a professional basketball player. I want to be a concert pianist, or I want to play in the band. I want to play the the tuba or the trombone, and I want to be the best. I want to start a business, right? I'm going to start a business and be a Fortune 500 company. I want to go to Harvard. And your response to them is, okay, you know what? I've got the magic answer. You spend 30 minutes a week practicing football and working out, and you'll go to the NFL. You spend 30 minutes a week playing your piano, and I bet you'll be the best piano player in the world. Spend 30 minutes a week building your business, and before long, it'll be a Fortune 500 company. Can you imagine? Can you imagine saying that and how foolish it would sound? We would never do that. But yet, I want to be a stronger Christian. Okay, I'll spend 30 minutes a week in Bible study and hope that's what it pans out to be. It would be foolish to say it in any other aspect of our life. And Jesus is saying, You don't want to be the rocky soil? Get some depth to you, get some roots. So that when the trials and tribulations of the world act up, you can survive them. The next type of soil, the thorny soil. The thorny soil. This is the soil where the seed is choked out by the weeds, choked out by the bushes. Okay? So in, in Tennessee, we have blackberries. I don't think they can grow here because they generally grow when it's about 90 degrees. Okay? And we would go pick blackberries. My mom makes a blackberry cobbler. I knew if I even mentioned it, my mouth is actually watering thinking about it because it's so good. It's about four pounds of sugar, some blackberries, and a little bit of crust. I mean, it's hard to beat that. Um, My diabetes is great, though. So we have blackberries, and we go out to pick blackberries. And here's the thing. First of all, they have these thorns in them, so they're a thorn bush. But one blackberry bush, if you've ever picked them, can produce a gallon or two gallons of blackberries in one single bush. And one of the things you'll notice when you're picking them, there's nothing else that's growing among the blackberries, okay? Because wherever the blackberries grow, they take over. They can grow a foot in a week. They can take over six or eight feet in a month. 
they take over everything because those blackberries are aggressive. Those thorns, those thorn bushes are aggressive. They take all the water, they take all the nutrients, and nothing else can grow. Jesus says this about the rocky soil down in verse 18. And others are the ones, excuse me, the, the, the thorny soil. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. How is it that a Christian, a believer, can allow the world to choke them out? Can allow the world to make them unfruitful? Again, this is a a simple illustration And the only way that we let the world take over our lives is the same way that we would let Satan do it. We have to allow it. The world doesn't magically come into my life if I don't let it. And what this means is I'm letting the world stay in my life. I'm living in the world when I should be living next to the world. A part of it but not in it, right? It means I have the focus on the wrong things. It means I'm letting the things of the world distract me from what I should be focused on. That's what this soil is. I'm letting things around me grow up around me and take away my focus. I'm letting things grow up around me and distract me from what I should be doing. And so I'm not paying attention to what I should be paying attention to. 1 John 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The things of the world that distract us. Now again, it'd be easy to say, oh yes, those terrible worldly things that the world deals with and that the world struggles with, like sexual immorality and drugs and alcohol. And Jesus is not just talking about that when he's talking to me and when he's talking to you. The things of the world that distract us may not be sinful in and of themselves but they can become sinful if that's where our focus is. Things like sports or entertainment, things like friends or my job, things like social media or politics or social causes. Is there anything wrong with anything I just listed? No. None of those things are intrinsically sinful. But when they become our focus, when they become what distracts us, then that's when the world chokes us out. That's when the world chokes out the word in our lives. So the question for this type of soil is not whether these things are in our lives, it's where's my priority? Where's my focus? That's what the question is for the thorny soil. What is my priority in my life? I would encourage you, if you don't do this regularly, every few months, sit down and determine what your priorities are. Now, Let me make this clear. I'm not saying sit down and make a list of what your priorities should be. That's easy to do. Oh, Jesus is my priority. God is my priority. Church, no, 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 no. Sit down and determine what they are. Now, hopefully those align, but they often don't. How do you do that? I've said before from the pulpit, and I've said it from class, and there are two easy methods, and I didn't come up with them. And I know they're right because Jesus did come up with them. We'll read them here in a minute. There are two easy methods to determine what your priorities are. Very easy. The first one, you want to know what your priorities are. Today, when you go home, open up your checkbook, open up your bank statement, open up your credit card, and just read through it. And you will know what your priorities are. 
You will know what your priorities are about where the money is, right? Isn't that what we say? Follow the money, right? Follow the money. Yeah. Open up your checkbook, and you'll know, is my priority my retirement account? Is it things of this world? Is it fun stuff? What's my priority? Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19 and following. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Pay attention to verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He is saying, follow the money. You want to know what your priorities are? Your checkbook will tell you what your priorities are. It's pretty easy. Pretty easy. Second way, the first way, if you want to know what your priorities are, where do you spend your money? The second way, where do you spend your time? Right? Again, it's pretty easy. So we do a, when I was in academics, we would do a, um, we would do an exercise with every incoming graduate student. Because we would tell them, you're going to spend about 35 to 40 hours a week in class, and you're going to need, the average person needs between 50 and 60 hours a week of study to make a B. Okay, so that's what we were in, in medicine. That's what we were telling them. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to see where you're spending your time. And we would give them a sheet, and it documented every hour of the day for seven days in 15-minute increments. And they would fill out what they did on that sheet every day for a week. And then they would come in and meet with their advisor. 100% of the students, 100% of the students made changes because they did not realize how much time they were wasting on things. And wasting doesn't matter when you have time to waste, right? But when you're suddenly stressing them and put them in graduate school, something had to give. And it was things like uh, exercise and movies and eating. And you say, oh, all of those things are great. I agree. You got to eat. You got to sleep. So I'm not saying count out your time and say, well, my priority must be sleep. No, the Lord knows you need sleep every day. All right? He knows that. He knows you need a job to pay the bills. But it's not hard to determine what your priority is when you start looking at the extra things in life that you choose to do and where that time is spent, where that money is spent. On down in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and manna, or God and the world. He's saying, follow the money. Where do you spend your time? Those, that's where your heart is, and that's who your master is. You want to know what your priorities are? It's pretty easy. And in the thorny soil, anything that takes our focus off of God allows the world to distract us and take us where we shouldn't be. And finally, the good soil. The soil that is ready for the seed. The soil that is ready to produce. So, again, when I was farming in Tennessee, I had a couple tractors. I had a big one that was like 125 horsepower, and it had a big 9.5-foot tiller that I'd put on the back of it, 1,800 pounds. And it would till up the soil and cultivate it with one pass, 10 inches deep. It was as fine as sand. I loved it. It was great. And then I could plant, right? I could do it an, an acre or two of pumpkins. I could do my garden with it. There's not a farmer in the world that would go out with a handful of seed and think, hmm, this is my livelihood. I've got to make a living. Well, oh, well, I'll throw it over there and see what happens, right? Nobody would do that. If you want to be the good soil, it takes something to be the good soil. See, that good soil is cultivated and prepared 
right? It is prepared for the seed. That good soil is prepared. Jesus says this in Mark 4 and verse 20, but those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. The good soil is ready for the seed. Sorry, ready for the seed. Okay? A farmer prepares it. The person who's sowing it cultivated an area where he wanted that seed to grow. So if we want to be the good soil, we need to be preparing our heart for the word. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, some of it we've already talked about, right? Prayer, that's a great way to prepare ourselves. Bible study is something we should be doing to prepare ourselves. Growing towards God in our service. How about, how about when, when we think, boy, it's hard to resist temptation sometimes. It's hard to say no. And let me ask you this. What are you doing to prepare yourself for when you're going to be tempted? So, so I've had somebody say one time, and I've tried to do this, and I'm not very good at it. And I've been trying to do this now for a couple of years. Again, I'm not very good at this. I've started trying to deny myself certain things even when I could do them. So let's talk about that for a minute. When was the last time you said no to yourself? Now, when I say that, you may say, well, I wanted to buy a Ferrari the other day, but I said no. Okay, let's put some qualifications on that. When was the last time you said no for something that you could afford to do, you had the time to do, you were able to do it physically, but you said no just because occasionally I want to tell myself no so that I learn how to do that, so that when temptation comes, I also can say no. And I'm not just talking about sinful things, right? Oh, I would do that, but if my wife saw that, she'd be upset. No, 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 no. I'm talking about maybe just saying no, denying ourselves something that we would otherwise do. That's how we prepare ourselves to deny the pleasures of sin, right? That's how we prepare ourselves. Because, see, if sin weren't pleasurable, it wouldn't be that tempting. And so maybe... You don't buy something that you could have bought, or you don't go out to eat, or you don't do something that would have been fun. Not all the time. I'm not talking about taking joy out of your life. But have you ever told yourself no on something that you could do, you had the time and the money? That's how we prepare ourselves for saying no. How did you prepare yourself to come to worship today? What did you do? The sermon title has been published in the bulletin. Did you look at this? Did you look at the parable at all? Did you read about it? Did you say a prayer? Oh, well, we have an opening prayer. Yes, we have an opening prayer for us. But what did I do in my prayer to prepare my mind and my heart for being here this morning? And what did you do in your prayer before you came to prepare your mind and your heart for being here this morning? How did you prepare? Well, you stayed up really late gaming and playing, and now you're tired? Is that preparing for worship? Do you prepare for Bible class? What do you do to prepare yourself? See, the good soil is prepared is prepared so that it's going to produce. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, Rather train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and for also the life to come. Training yourself is preparing yourself for what is to come. How are you training yourself and preparing yourself? So preparation is the first one. The second thing that the good soil does, right? Mark chapter 4 and verse 20 produces 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Produce. The soil that's going to be the good soil produces. It produces. It produces for God. 
What are you producing? Matthew 7 and verse 16. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. If we are going to be the good soil, then we need to be producing. What am I producing in my life? Oh, I came to church. That's not producing. Oh, well, I gave a check. That's not producing. What am I producing for God? What am I going out into the world and producing for him? What good fruit am I bearing for him within this church family? If I'm going to be the good soil, I need to be prepared, and I need to be producing. Well, Jesus takes an opportunity to teach us here through the parable of the sower and through the soils. And I hope we've had an opportunity to think about the different types of soils and which one applies to us. This morning, we offer as a tradition our invitation. The invitation is available if you want to become a Christian. Now would be the time to make that decision. If you have something in your life that you would like for us to pray about, to strengthen you, or to help in some way, you can come together while we stand and sing. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the blood that makes me white as snow. No other bounds I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the blood that makes me white.